Good morning. It's been a very long time since I've been here, so I feel like I should share what happened to me while I was delivering this message in Eastbourne last week. I thought you might appreciate this, okay? So I'm, um, one of the challenges of being a preacher is that you are, uh, you're sort of on display, and it means that your foolishness is more obvious than is that for most, probably most of us, although some of us do a lot of public speaking in normal life. And this, I had the following exchange of texts with my wife while I was preaching last week. Um, it was pretty bad, really. So I, what happened was, I was you, you're preaching, and you get a buzz in your pocket. Um, may have, does it happen to you while you're leading worship sometimes? You, you ignore it. I did ignore it at the time. I had a but I thought, there's, not, there's either someone playing a prank. Sometimes Graham does that while I'm preaching to put me off. Um, but often, it would only otherwise be Rachel. And if it's Rachel, it's important. And so I looked at the end of the message. I thought, must find out what this was. And I read it, and it said, Andrew Wilson. We are buying you lots of new shirts. And, and I thought, so I just texted back, like, that is very unfair because that's a bit of an insult to my shirt. So I just texted back a sort of string of exclamation marks and question marks as you do. Like, what? That's, what what's that about? And she replied, we could do an offering and just ask people to put in 10p for each time you show your midriff. That way we could buy Gucci. And then she signed off, and that was the end of the conversation. During a sermon, could you believe that somebody would do that? So if you have been somehow flashed by me in any way, or are during this person, I think it's probably because I'm quite a heart, an arm-waving kind of guy. Some of you, sadly, have never noticed, and you're going to notice today. So I'm sorry about that as well. Um, but it's good to be with you anyway. That's nothing to do with the message. I just thought I'd share it. Um, we're in a teaching series called Essence at the moment. So if you're new or it's one of the first few times you've been maybe new or just forgetful, um, maybe you have been coming the last few weeks and just have no idea what it was about. What we've been doing is looking at a series of what Christians essentially are. What at the core of a Christian, what are we? And that's hopefully a good series to hear if you are a Christian because it reminds you and, and shows you at the, at the core what the Bible says you are. But hopefully it's also a good series if you're not a Christian because it highlights some of the key things that Christians believe about the world that you might not and that might help you see perhaps the difference between Christianity and the view that you hold at the moment. But the reality is that everybody holds assumptions about the kinds of people that they are. Everybody believes that they are certain things and they are not certain other things, even if they don't necessarily think that very often about it. And those beliefs will shape the way that they behave in all kinds of ways. The question we have to ask is where we get those beliefs from. So everybody has them. You sort of walk outside, stop people walking past, and ask them, what do you believe you really are? They might think it was an odd question, but they'll probably think, uh, if if they're able to get past the oddity of it, they'll be able to tell you, well, I think maybe uh, this is how I think about what I am, and maybe I think this is what it is to be a human. And people try and find those answers in a lot of different places. We could define who we are by our behavior. We could say, well, what I do to find out who I really am in here is I look at the actions I perform and conclude, therefore, I must be that sort of a person. So I do good things, which means I am a good person. I do bad things, so I'm a bad person. I am successful at work, therefore, I'm a success. I'm a failure at work, therefore, I'm a failure. And so we observe our behavior and then conclude things about our identity. That's one way you could do it. The problem is that for a Christian, for any of us, we live inconsistently. So some of us, are, all of us I suspect, will sometimes succeed and sometimes fail. Sometimes make a good call, sometimes make a bad one. Sometimes be honoring and loving to people, sometimes be hateful and spiteful to people. And we've all got both. And so looking at your behavior to define your identity is unstable. It's not easy because it, you're continually shifting your behavior according to whether you're having a good or a bad day. 
You might have this experience. It happens in my street at 7.45 on a Tuesday morning. Um, you hear the noise outside. And you think, it's the dust truck. It's coming up the road. Oh, no, we haven't put the bins out. And it happens all the time. And annoyingly, having said this last week, I then did this on Tuesday. I just completely forgot again. And it's just that noise. And you suddenly think, no, 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 no. And you have to rush and get all of your bins out. But you're, I sleep in my boxes, so I'm going pulling on random bits of clothing, running around. And sometimes they're not even my clothes. So I wear my wife's. She's pretty petite compared to me. So I'm wearing my wife's hoodie. Um, and then go outside, pull on some pajama trousers or available some things. Sometimes those waterproof trousers you have in your cupboard because you're downstairs already. You then put on your lodger's wellies and looking like a total chump, you wander out into the street with a bin and park it there just in time for the dustman to take it. And at the moment I'm doing that, am I a pastor or a dustman? Am I a pastor or a dustman? Well, I'm a pastor who is, on this particular occasion, behaving rather like a dustman. But most of the time I don't. I'm just inconsistent. I don't always live out who I am. Sometimes I live out somebody else's identity. But I'm doing it as a sort of, I'm still a pastor, but I'm just doing something that's out of character. And that, I guess, is the way Christians stand to sin. You could say a Christian is a saint, but they do sin sometimes. They put the rubbish out sometimes. They do things sometimes that are out of keeping with their normal identity. So looking at behavior for your essence is not stable. It's not a good place to find it. Second way you might come about doing it, and this is a very common thing in the age of authenticity, this sort of the age we're in now where people just I know, look at yourself, discover your heart. So John Boyer is looking just very chilled right now. It's very good. Acting inconsistently up here. All, okay, guys, let's all engage with God. And he just finishes his worship time. He's just like, yeah, yeah, man, like this. Okay, so John Boyer wants to know who he is, and he looks in his heart. And he says, who am I really? I'm going to look deep into my soul and find out my deepest desires. And that's who I am. I want to be authentic. I want to be me. I don't want to be what the rest of the world tell me. This is the frozen thing. You know, have you seen Disney's Frozen or heard about it? Um, you know, that, that's, the, that's the narrative. It's like, you've got to look at yourself and you've got to understand who am I really meant to be? I don't want the world to oppress me and force me to be someone else. I am me. And so John does that and he looks at his desires and concludes, that's what I am. I will be true to me. And that's, I guess, a very common mod. That's pretty much every movie. In, if there's a hero in a story, that's what they do. The world is trying to oppress them and constrain them, but John breaks free and becomes something else, who he wants to be. Again, there is a problem with that way of identifying who, your essence because the world around John tells him which desires he has should be validated. That's a good desire. Well done, John. Embrace it. And which desires are bad. The world around him is continually chopping off bits of his, who he is in his heart. It's telling him, no, 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 that one's a good one, that one's a bad one. So now I'm afraid I'm going to cast you in an unpleasant role. You're now going to be an Anglo-Saxon warrior. And, no, you don't have to go anywhere. Actually, yeah, maybe you can. And in fact, since you're standing up, come on out, why not? Okay? John is an Anglo-Saxon warrior in the 8th century. Okay? In fact, there are some similarities. You're Anglo-Saxon. You look fairly warrior-ish. You've got a beard. You work outside, right? Okay? Um, and you, you can play instruments. So you are an Anglo-Saxon warrior. And so John has a, an identity. He has a couple of things deep in his heart in here that he really wants to do. One of the things he wants to do is he wants to kill people because he's, just, he's, an, he's a warrior. And he, that's what he does. He wants to take their land. He wants to pillage them. He wants to kill people and steal their property. He also has a desire to have sex with people of the same sex as him. And this 8th century, this eighth century figure, okay? So now you're looking at John in different eyes. Now, John, with those two desires, as an 8th century Anglo-Saxon warrior, his culture is telling him, 
hey, you should embrace the desire to go out and kill people and take their land, and you should reject the desire to have sex with people of the same sex as you. Right? One of those desires, the culture is saying, that's great, that's a good one. The other one's saying, no, that's no, a bad one. Now you transport forward John, and you could look a little bit less like a warrior, a little bit more like a sort of modern city slicker in London. Hey, there you go, okay? Now, transpose him forward to the 21st century. He's got the same two desires. He still wants to do both of those things. But now the culture is telling him the opposite. The culture is telling him, that desire to have sex with people of the same sex, embrace that. That's you. Go for it. That desire to kill people and take their land, that's awful. Don't do that. So he's got these deep desires in him, but already the world around him is telling him which ones he should embrace and which ones he shouldn't. So it's not very clear, it's not very stable for John to look deep into his heart to find out what he is either. Thank you. Now if you look, so you look out, you look at your behavior, or you look deep in to yourself. Where else could you look? If you can't, if both of those don't work, where else do you look? Well, for a Christian... The alternative is actually to say, I need to find out, I find out who I am by being told who I am by my creator and my father. That's how a Christian does it. And that might not be how many other people do it, but for a Christian, you say, I, the, only, the only place I've got is outside myself, but not based on my own behavior, based on the person who made me and what they think I'm for. That's what I'm for. That's how I decide my essence. It's the Lion King version. Simba, remember remember who you are. Do you remember that? I made it sound probably that's a little bit more Darth Vader-y than I intended, but you know that scene when he's looking out and he's looking in the pool and then he hears this voice from above and it's his dad, his creator, his father, who is speaking to him and saying, you are the true king. You're not living like it. You're hiding away. You need to face up to the reality of who you are and go back, to the, your, go back home and sort things out and become the person you are because you're my son. That account of how people find their essence or identity is the way Christians do it. Christians don't do it the frozen way. Oh, look at your heart. And they don't do it the dustman way. Oh, I'm doing this, so I must be that. Christians look at what God says they are and conclude from that, he made me, he knows, he has the right to define me. And that's what we're doing. It's a long introduction, but that's what we're doing in this series. We're looking at what those things are. What are the things that God the Father says about Christians that therefore define our essence? And today we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. We've been doing it for a few weeks. We are saints. We are rescued. We are reconciled. And this morning we're going to see that we are made alive. We are made alive. And I'm going to do a bit, and then Matt's going to do a bit, and then I'm going to do a bit more. We are made alive. Colossians 2 verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who haven't seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him 
All the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. If you just pause there, all Paul is doing here is he's saying, you need to know who you are, and you need to know who God is. You need to live according to the fullness of revelation in Jesus, and not have other people come up and say, do you know what, you need to add this. You need to stick this in. You need to have, you haven't had any angelic visions or visitations? You're not a proper Christian. You haven't had this spiritual thing. You haven't got this knowledge that no one else has. You haven't discovered that. What are you doing? Ah, oh, there's a hidden, a hidden power. It sounds like some Christian books, right? The hidden power of this. Whenever I see books like that, I want to go up and scribble it out. Because they're not, it's not true. There is no power to anything in that sense that's hidden outside of Christ. It's not the case. And so Paul is fighting people like that in this church. He's saying, you've got to make sure that you remain fixed on Christ because all the deity you need, all the godness that you need is in him. And don't get people trying to draw you away. And, oh, have you had this philosophical idea? It's very new and special. He says, don't fall for it. It's all in Christ. That's up to verse 10. Verse 11. This is a complicated sentence. In him also... You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. We're going to come back to that because it's sticky and complex. Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. And having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Look at that bit at the top there. In which you were also raised with him. God made you alive. A Christian, for Paul, is someone who's been made alive. That's often not how Christians talk about who we are. And it's usually not how people who aren't Christians talk about who we are. Right? We could call it being regenerated or born again or raised with Christ, but born from above. The idea is the same. A Christian is a person who was dead and is now alive. That's one of the ways, one of the key bits of language Paul uses to explain and Jesus uses to explain. This is what you are. You are a made alive person. Sometimes you hear people talk about, it's happening in the States a lot at the moment, there's, there's a presidential primary taking place on I think tomorrow or the day after so there's a lot of people trying to win evangelical Christians in America which is a lot of the population a lot of people talk about being born again Christians you know are you a born again Christian amongst born again Christians so and so is popular I think hang on a born again Christian is like saying a dark haired brunette or an unmarried bachelor it's just a, a, a doubling up of it there is no such thing as a Christian who's not born again Jesus says so you can't see the kingdom if you're not born again. So this isn't like a subcategory. Oh, Christians, lots of dead ones, and some of them are alive. No, a Christian is somebody who is born again, who is made alive for Paul, for Jesus, for everybody. Now, in the eyes of many people who are Christians, that's not the main way you describe yourself. Some of us would describe it as a, I feel like a difference of intellect. Like I, you know, well, I looked at the evidence, and at the age of 18, I went this way, and my friends went this way. I believed it, they didn't. Or you made a lifestyle choice. Well, I, I kind of got into a community, and I liked it, and I decided to go this way, and they, my friends went that way. My, that's how my friends would think about the difference between me and them. They would think, Andrew Bedard believes different things, or has had a different religious experience, or he's made a different choice. 
But what I believe is true, as much as those things are true, that, that's not the essence of what's happening. The main difference between me and them, according to the Bible, is that I am alive to God and they are dead to God. It's a much bigger difference than they think. It might be a bigger difference than some of us think. The gap is not a gap between, oh, I made that view or I had this belief or I made that choice. The gap is one between death and life. Paul sees it that way. If we just put that verses 12 to 15 back up again. Okay. Oh, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. We will come back to that verse. Paul sees you, if you're a believer, as someone who has had the life of God breathed into them when they were still dead. He sees it as like you're, you're walking around a graveyard summoning corpses out of the ground. He sees it like the scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When they're all the people who've been turned to stone by the white witch. Just in the middle of what they were doing at the time. And then Aslan comes into the yard and he begins to breathe his life into them. And this person who was like this as they died looks at themselves and realizes, I'm alive. Or the person that at that at the time goes, or some variant of that. That's the way in which Paul pictures what we are. You were stone dead. And God came, Aslan, Jesus, the king, and he came and he breathed his life in and you came to life. That's what a Christian is. So Jesus' appeal in the gospel is not so much, would you like to come and follow me? But more, Lazarus, come out. Dead person, get out here. And life is effected in us by the call from Jesus. That's the way Paul understands what's happening. So let's go back to verse 11 for a second on the previous slide. Thanks, John. In, this, is, this is the one I said was it's just a bit of a fiddle as a sentence. In him also you were circumcised, it's at the bottom here, with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That's half the sentence. We'll leave it there for a second. He's using circumcision as a picture of what has happened to Christians. Circumcision, let's just you know, not make too many bones about it. Circumcision is when you chop your foreskin off and you throw it away. And it's a sign, really, of the covenant with God being demonstrated in the fact that you are chopping off a precious bit of yourself and removing it. And it's got other symbolism as well. But Paul then uses that as a picture of what has happened to us in Christ. But he says it's not that it's happened with hands, with hands and a flint knife. Eek. He said this has happened spiritually. That Again, in Christ, what's happened is an old bit of you has been cut off and thrown away. The flesh, the old life, the life that desires to sin and revel in sin has been cut off and thrown on the ground. And it hurts at the time. And you went, ah, 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 and you spent a while healing from it. But having done that, you are now a different kind of person. You are set apart for God. And because it's happened, anybody who wants to then go and live in the flesh again and pick up the old life and make it part of themselves, a Christian who wants to worship idols or be sexually immoral or greedy or whatever... A Christian who wants to do that is like a circumcised male trying to find his foreskin and stitch it back on again. Paul is saying, it's been cut off and thrown away. You can't put it back. That's not the way it works. You have been circumcised in the circumcision of Christ. Now, because we're not Jewish, and most of us probably not Jewish here or Muslim, we don't use that language very often, and it can feel a bit strange to us. But Paul is pretty punchy about it, saying that's what's happened. The circumcision that happened to you was a cutting off of the flesh and a throwing it away in order to give you new life. So he says that's one of the ways you should think about what's happened to you. In verse 11. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised through faith in the powerful working of God. So the second image he uses in this sentence, circumcision in the first half, 
baptism in the second half. He said, it's like that. It's like a person who was like, when you are baptized, what actually happened was you were being buried. You were being buried with him and raised with him. And that statement might bother some of us if we've been taught that baptism doesn't do anything. Oh, baptism is just a symbol of faith. It is, it's a bit trivial, really. No, no, no. Paul says, you are buried in baptism and raised in baptism. And that, for some of us, that's like, whoa, you sure? That makes it sound like baptism does something. On the other hand, he then says it happens through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And that might bother those of us who've been taught that you get, can baptize an infant who doesn't believe or understand. Because Paul is saying, well, it does bury you, and it does mean you're raised with Christ, but only if you are a person of faith when it happens. Because if you don't have faith, it doesn't do anything. It's the faith that causes it to work. Otherwise, you're just getting somebody wet. So he's saying both of those things happen together. You are buried with Christ and raised with Christ. And if I can be a nerd for a moment, and there's not much you can do about it, even if I'm up here, um, buried with him in baptism through faith. Notice the prepositions. Baptism, if you like, is the medium in which this happens. Faith is the means by which it happens. Okay, so it's in baptism, that's, how it, that's, the, that's the, the, the medium in which it takes place, but it's through faith. That's where, where the power comes from. And so Paul has started just giving us two pictures here, circumcision and baptism, and saying these are pictures of the way in which you have been made alive in Christ through faith. We're then going to go on to verses 13 to 14, and Matt is going to come out and explain those for us. Are we on? Good morning, everybody. It's great to be here. Um, like Andrew said, I want to look at verses 13 and 14. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can turn to that. Alternatively, <coughs> the words should appear on here. So picking up verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And I guess the first point that I want to pick up this morning is Paul's use of language here. I mean, he pulls no punches, does he? You were dead in your trespasses. And like we've seen, he's not talking about physical death, is he? He's talking about spiritual death, in that we didn't have a relationship with God, we didn't know him. And Paul goes on to emphasize this point when he talks about the uncircumcision of your flesh. So he's even saying, actually, you weren't even in the old covenant promise between God and Israel. You were in all sorts of trouble. You were a complete mess. However, as Paul does, amazing, he paints this great contrast. He said, yes, we were dead. However, God has now made us alive with him, with Jesus, by forgiving us our trespasses. We now have a restored relationship with God. And if you're a Christian here today, that in essence is who you are. You were in the kingdom of darkness, now you're in the kingdom of light. You had no relationship with God, you have a relationship with God. You were dead, but now you're alive. And as I was reading through these verses when I was preparing and I was praying a bit and I was was thinking it through, I was thinking, actually, how much the world has got Christianity muddled, how much they've distorted this. Actually, the world views Christianity as being dead, as being dull, as in boring, lifeless, irrelevant. And I even think back to when I was kind of like 20, 21, and I started going back to church, and the group of lads that I was hanging around with, they, they were coming to me, and I said, oh, you know, I don't really want to be doing that, I want to be doing this instead. And the first place that they went was, Matt, you're really dull now, you're really boring. 
They also went on to kind of like talk about Christian camp and, asked, and kept calling me Moses time after time after time, which it was brilliant. It was really funny. Um, I, I never got sick of that, honest. But I was thinking, and I took a step back from this, and I was talking to other Christians as well, and I was thinking, actually, why is this? Why does this happen? Why did my friends go there first? And the conclusion that I came to myself was that, actually, I don't know if I was living the truth of this. I don't know if I always truly believe this within my workplace, within my schools. Like, do I truly believe that I was dead and that I was alive? Am I expectant of what God is going to do in this moment, in this situation? Am I waiting on that? And I think that that is the challenge here for all of us as Christians today. Actually, do we truly believe that? Are we going to believe it so that it permeates all areas of our life? Are we going to go into our workplaces, our schools, our homes, expectant on what God can do? That is definitely the challenge for us. And in verse 14, Paul goes on to say how God forgives us our trespasses. And he says, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And Paul points directly to cross and says, that's how God does it. He does it there. I brought with me this morning my Tesco credit card bill. Okay. This is my record of debt to Tesco's. If I don't pay this bill, Tesco's are not going to pay it for me. They're not going to turn around to me and say, you know what, Matt, that's fine. We won't pay that. Actually, they're going to say, you need to pay this debt. You need to pay for your, your food shopping and your clothes shopping and maybe your Starbucks coffee. You need to pay for this. And if you don't, we're going to send the debt collectors out to get you. Not literally. but. <laughs> However, my record of debt to God is far greater than just a clothes shop or a food shop or a Starbucks coffee. However, my record of debt to God is at times when maybe... I look to myself to solve my own needs. I don't honour my wife. Maybe I speak out against people. Maybe, um, yeah, maybe I'm not living in a way that honours honors God. And yet God forgives that for us. God will gladly pay that day. And just at the cross as well, when those Roman soldiers were nailing Jesus' hands in, thinking that they were bringing him to death, actually at that same moment, in that same time, what God was doing was taking our record of debt to him and he was putting that to the cross and he was nailing that into the cross to bring that to death so that he could bring us to life, so that he could restore that relationship between us and God. And I guess the final point that I want to make today is just having a look at this. It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses, God made us alive together with him. It's God that brings us to life. All we bring is our sin and maybe a repentant heart. It's God that does the work. And this is really important for two reasons. The first reason is because we can't boast. I can't look around the church and think, you know what, I deserve this relationship with God a bit more than that person. I think I'm a bit better than them. I deserve it a bit more. Because we didn't do it. It was God that did it. My experience of this is actually the times when I'm aware of sin in my life, when I'm aware of stuff that I've done wrong. And there might be a church meeting or there may be a prayer meeting that I'm going to. And the last thing I want to do is really to go to it. But the times when I push through and I go into that meeting, and they're the times that I meet with God because I'm coming with him with a repentant heart and actually saying, it's not about me, this is about you and what work you've done. 
times where I think I've got it all together, where I've sorted, you know, no issues this week. Actually, I'm living a really good Christian life. I see there are times when I really struggle to engage in those meetings. And secondly, it shows how much the Father loves us, that he would send his own son to death on a cross so that he could bring our sin to death and restore that relationship between us and God. God loves us so much. And that's true whether you're a Christian here today or you're not. God loves you so much. But if you are a Christian and you believe this, it's great comfort, isn't it? Because actually, in the times where you find it really hard, maybe you're, going, you're at work and things are really difficult, you've made a mistake or you've made a bad decision, actually, they're the times where we get great comfort because we know that God loves us, God is for us. And just like my four-year-old son, Jacob, actually, if I knew that there was something that happened in our relationship, maybe he'd, he'd been a little bit cheeky and I'd send him to the timeout spot. And he'd come off and he was a bit unsure, you know, does daddy love me? How does daddy feel? Actually, as a loving father, what I want to do is go to him and say, Jacob, it's all right, I love you. I care for you. I want to restore that relationship. And that's what God does with us, but he just does it on a far greater scale. He's a loving father. And you who are dead, God has made alive. Amen. Brilliant. So just going to look now lastly at verse 15. And then we're going to wrap up and we're going to break bread and sing as well. But want to bring, this is where the passage is building to in a way. There's a sort of a triumphant conclusion here, a kind of big announcement, which he finishes in verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, or in some translations, in it or in the cross. Same difference, really, because it's Jesus at the cross that he's talking about anyway. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and shamed them, put them on display, humiliated them. And this is a picture from ancient warfare where what you do is when you went and invaded another, another land or they invaded you and you were fighting them and you won, you'd kill the people in battle. But then when the battle was over and they surrendered, you would take their soldiers and you would chain them one to the other or tie ropes around them and you'd get them in a massive marching line like this and you would drag them through the streets of your city, jeering at them and throwing things at them and ah at them effectively like you would in football when someone misses a penalty or equivalent you know that that's the only time we make that kind of noise in our culture shaming of another person but in eastern cultures the shaming is a much bigger part of life and it's certainly a bigger part of the life in this illustration where Paul is saying what Jesus did was he conquered death and hell and then he took all of the powers all of the demonic forces all of the strongholds and he marched them in a pictorially speaking he marched them through the streets humiliating them and exposing them as having no power he said they are disarmed a lot of us don't live as if they are. And this is where the passage is building to. You see, if you've made somebody alive and you've destroyed the powers that used to hold them and now, they're not, now those powers are emptied and got rid of all of their, they've got no power, they've got no weaponry left, then you know that those enemies, when they attack you, are only ever pretending. They're firing blanks. It would be as if we were to be trying to take the beaches on D-Day and people are running to, onto the beach and then they see loads of cardboard cutouts of tanks and guns on the hills from the Germans, like painted to look real, made of cardboard, and then they saw them and went, ah! and ran away and got back in the ships and sailed back to England and left France to the Nazis. That's the equivalent of the way some Christians can think about the power of the enemy. They don't realize he's been disarmed. They don't realize that. So we live as if, as if his accusation sticks, but it doesn't. Why doesn't it stick? Because the only basis for there being any accusation against me has just been nailed to the cross, as Matt's just been saying. 
My bill has been stuck there and every single item on it has been paid for so there's nothing left. Which means that the only thing the enemy can do, which is to accuse me, is empty and powerless. He has been disarmed. He has been, all of his power has been got rid of. And God wants us to see that. Paul wants us to see it. And so that we don't engage in, if you like, spiritual warfare. In this sort of sometimes, if you know, if you heard the language of spiritual warfare, you may well associate it with sort of foaming at the mouth. Ah, we must bind this and, ah, and lots of noise and shouting and arm waving and charismatic fervor. And actually, for Paul, he's saying these have been disarmed. You need to stand, stand firm, stay where you are. Don't move. Don't let accusations get to you, and allow the truth of who God says you are to be sufficient to silence what the enemy says. So you can actually have a much more laid-back attitude to the forces of evil if you think this way about your essence and your identity. When you face satanic or demonic opposition, you can simply say, you have been disarmed. You have no power. Death is dead. Jesus has triumphed. I love this. Some of you know the name Smith Wigglesworth. He's a Pentecostal, fiery preacher, healer guy about 100 years ago. Slightly less. He, he tells the story about waking up in the night and seeing an apparition of the devil at the end of his bed, which I've never had. must be weird. He wakes up, looks across, sees this figure at the end of his bed, and then says, oh, it's you, and then goes back to sleep. I love that because it indicates security. Martin Luther, some of you know that Martin Luther is a little bit more colorful with his language, and so this might offend some of you. I'm about to say a word that I was not allowed to say until about 15. Um, In fact, even now, I'm sure my mum doesn't like the fact that I say it. But this is Martin Luther on spiritual warfare. I am of a different mind ten times in the course of a day, but I resist the devil, and often it is with a fart that I chase him away. When he tempts me with silly sins, I say to him, Devil, yesterday I broke wind as well. Have you written that down on your list? Which I think is a wonderful way of engaging with the devil. In other words, you just don't have anything on me. You want to accuse me of doing that? Well, I did this as well. So Yabu sucks to you, but it doesn't matter because I'm free in Christ. That's the heart that you have when you understand these truths. He has been disarmed. He has been conquered, triumphed over, publicly humiliated as having no power. And as a result, Christians are not to live in fear of him because we, unlike him, have been made alive in Christ. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. So when we face temptation, you can say, my flesh is dead to me. It's been chopped off and thrown away. So I don't have to obey it. When we face accusation, we can say, like Matt effectively just has with his bill, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. You can say that because you know the debt has been paid. When you face fear, the fear of death, you can say, I've been made alive. The worst thing you can do to me is to kill me and I am already guaranteed to be resurrected on the other side of it. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. It's good news. So we're going to get John out and the band are just going to come out and help us as we just go and break bread. And the reason we break bread in this church and any church is because we're wanting to keep coming back to the moment when all this turned triumphing over them in him, the way this happened, the way that you and I were made alive, the way that the devil was disarmed was through the death of Jesus Christ for us. And so in the way we do things here, if you're visiting from outside, this is something that we do as Christians, so if you're not a believer, then it's probably best just to sit this one out and observe. There'll probably be others doing the same, so don't worry. But if you are a Christian, even if you're not from this church, we'd love to invite you to join us. We come and we take bread, which is the body of Jesus broken for us. We take the juice representing the blood of Jesus shed for us. 
And as we feed on him, so the Anglican says this, we feed on him by faith in our hearts with thanksgiving. That's what we're doing. We're saying, thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. And as I take this bread and take this juice, I look back for what you've done, and I look forward to the day when your victory will be all in all. There will be no more sin and no more death. Let's stand, shall we? John and the band will lead us into a song in the next minute, but we've got a table at the back and a table to the side over here. Just come in in your own time, take the bread and juice, and let's celebrate the cross of Jesus.